0: Good evening. My name is Blake Dozier, and I am the youth and family minister here, filling in for Chris, and it's a pleasure to be with you all. Let me take you back to the summer of 1995. It was a big summer for me and two of my cousins, Zach Bell, who many of you know, and another cousin, Aaron Holliman, because this was the summer, first time we were going to go to summer camp and we had watched the shows, we knew what it was going to be like. We had this picture in our mind. I mean, endless exploring, Okay, all kinds of pranks pulled in the cabin, Um, one of those big blobs that floats in the river that you take turns jumping off of and launching your friends into orbit. We couldn't wait for the independence, and I remember watching our moms drive off after unloading our stuff, and I'm not sure how long it took to realize we had made a grave mistake. So here we were, stuck at camp, okay, with no one to rescue us, exiles in a strange land, okay. the The cabin wasn't nearly as comfortable as we expected it to be. The bathroom situation was a uh, not nearly as comfortable as we expected it to be. The showering situation was even more deplorable. All of the other kids seemed to kind of know what was going on, but we didn't have any friends and didn't know what was happening. It was a strange place among strange people with strange customs, and we kind of felt like a fish out of water. I'll save the end of that story for another sermon illustration, but I will uh, pause there and ask you this. Have you ever felt that feeling where you are away from home, where you are not where you belong, where you feel kind of like you're a fish out of water, where you're uncomfortable, and you're surrounded by people who don't really get you, and don't really maybe understand your values. Okay? Jake introduced First Peter this morning. And he talked about the recipients of this letter being exiles of the dispersion. Peter later on refers to them as sojourners. They were people in a land that was not their own. Christians, Christians bound for heaven, stuck in exile amongst a culture and a people where they stuck out like sore thumbs. Where things weren't as they expected it to be. Where they were uncomfortable and away from home. And as Peter writes this encouraging letter to these exiles and these sojourners, in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, he gives them a challenge and he gives them a goal. If you would open up your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, we are going to spend all of tonight in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're not going anywhere else, so it's worth the effort now to get that bookmarked that is where we're going to be. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here he identifies the challenge And he gives them the goal, and the challenge and the goal are the same for us as well. How do we keep our conduct honorable so that the good we do causes others to glorify God? And in the verses that follow, in our key text for the day, I believe Peter starts starts the process of explaining what this looks like. He begins to answer that question for us. We are sojourners and exiles in a land that is not our home. We live under a government growing increasingly hostile towards Christianity. You are immersed in a culture that is driven by selfishness, often at the expense of others. And in light of our situation, I find today's passage to be particularly challenging. Here's what Peter ultimately says. Our struggle isn't against government or evil people. We don't serve God by fixing human institutions or enacting justice. Our struggle is against our own passions that pull us away from doing good. God is sovereign. We need not fight his battles. Let's turn our attention to the text for today. I'll back up to verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. As you interact with culture around you, the place where your conduct, where your deeds are most on display, I believe you're going to find two big arenas where you are tempted. The arena of human institutions and the arena of subordinate relationships. And Paul first tackles human institutions in verse 13 through 17. If you direct your attention back to the text, and we just take a plain reading, look at some of the things that it says. Paul says, "...subject yourself for the Lord's sake." He says, "...in doing good, which is what is expected of you, you put to silence the ignorance of the foolish." He says, "...live as free, but don't use your freedom to cover up evil. Honor everyone." love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. As we consider and wrestle with and chew on this passage, I want to take you back a second to the Old Testament, to the history of Israel. Israel, by its original design, as God laid out, was meant to be a nation that wasn't ran with normal political governance like the nations around them. fact, if we looked at the nation of Israel, we would see that they were quite different in many different aspects. One of those being that they had no king except for God alone. But as Israel settled into this new pattern, they began to observe and see the nations around them, and they asked God for a king. They saw the people around them and said, we like this idea of human institutions, We want to be like that. And so the cycle of the Old Testament began. God gave them a king. They would follow him for a while. They would slowly dwindle away. When things got out of hand, everything would collapse. After a period, God would send someone in to fix it, and the cycle would start over again. This is one of the reasons that when the New Testament starts and Jesus entered the scene, everyone missed the fact that he was the Messiah because they were looking for someone very different. They were looking for someone to change the human institutions around them, to bring a a political savior, you might say. And Jesus didn't come swinging a political hammer. He established a completely different type of kingdom. These group of exiles and sojourners were about to get hit, if they hadn't already gotten hit, with Nero and his persecution and 300 years of Roman persecution that were to follow that. Paul's not writing this to people in a landscape that is particularly Christian-friendly. And he writes this book because he understands that they were at risk of losing sight of just exactly what Jesus had done. They were at risk of assuming, since they had a higher calling and a higher membership, that they could be defiant, that they could be belligerent, that perhaps God even expected them to fix things in the name of Jesus, in the name of Christianity. But as it turns out, this was not the case. Peter says that because of their higher calling and because of their higher membership, they were called to subject themselves to the human institution that they found themselves among. Verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. What does this look like for us today? Our temptation, I believe, looks a little different. We have experienced quite a few protections and freedoms by our government, perhaps to the point that we've started to trust in them a little more than we should. And as we see the landscape changing around us, we are tempted, like them, to exalt the role of human institutions in our lives a little too much. Peter says this, You fear God. You give honor where honor is due. And you do good. That is your duty as a Christian. And this command is independent of the human institution that you might find yourself in. Y'all may not know this, but my parents raised goats. And we expect, uh, they expect a pretty good uh, crop of kids coming up soon. And uh, at the beginning of the, I guess, the end of the last year, they got themselves a new buck. You know what they named him? The Honorable Judge Robert Harper. <clears throat> <laughs> they did this but in hopes that this buck would uh, do better than the ones before and make a lot of girls <laughs> that happen to be more valuable. Okay, so this has nothing to do with our view of Robert Harper. <laughs> uh-huh. But I'm going to say this. When I walk into the barn, we don't say all rise for Honorable Robert Harper. We run away because that thing stinks. All right? But if I found myself in the actual Robert Harper's courtroom, you better believe I'd be rising when he walks in, giving honor where honor is due. But you know what? If I found myself in the courtroom of a judge who I did not respect the way that I respect Robert, I would still rise and give honor where honor is due. And and you think about the criminal who might walk into that courtroom after him. Peter said, honor everyone. We give honor to them as well, but we do it in a different way. We give honor to them by fair representation, a a just trial, um, a just sentencing. Showing honor and showing subjection is part of the good that we are called to do as servants of God. When we use our freedom to serve God, it manifests itself with good deeds done in subjection to human institutions. Why? The text tells us because we fear God, verse 17, because we are servants of God, verse 16, for the Lord's sake, verse 13, and we freely do this, verse 16. And what happens when we do so? The silent, the, it silences the ignorance of foolish people and causes them to glorify God. So this all sounds great, and it even kind of makes sense Until it doesn't. When freedoms are protected, when justice is upheld, when good is praised and evil is condoned, we're all on board. But what happens when this isn't the case? I would assume that you have the very same tension with this passage when you read it that I had and the reason that I'm preaching on it. The very same tension that I would assume that these exiles felt deeply because of the landscape that they lived in. And so I'm thankful Maybe thankful isn't the word, but I recognize Peter clarifies as he goes on. I don't necessarily like what he has to say, and here's how I would summarize it. When things aren't fair, only one thing changes, and it's not your actions. When things aren't fair, only one thing changes, and it's not how you act. Let's pick up in verse 18. He says, subject yourself even when things aren't fair, even when the master is unjust. And then he spends the rest of that section explaining why. So you'll note here that Peter really broadens the scope and personalizes it, because now instead of just talking about human institutions, he's talking about individuals in a subordinate relationship. So this would apply to you and government authorities. But it would also apply to a student under a teacher, or a child under a parent, or a spouse under another spouse, a player under a coach, an employee under an employer, a family member under another family member, a divorcee under an ex-spouse, a criminal under a prison guard, a citizen under law enforcement. I could go on, but I think the point has been made. We all exist in some shape, form, or fashion in a subordinate relationship. This passage applies to me, and it applies to you. And Peter says this, Subjection is still required. He doesn't use the word honor, but honor is still implied, and doing good is still the standard. Your actions do not change. The only thing that changes when things are unjust is the result of your suffering. You aren't called to change your actions or attitudes at all. When injustice happens, when things aren't as they should be, When you are hurt because of someone else's choices or someone else's sin that feels like it's going to destroy you, and you keep doing like you're supposed to do, it's a gracious thing. That puts the glory of God on display for the world to see like nothing else humanly possible. You don't change, but the results do this isn't a call for Christians to patiently endure. This is a call for Christians to receive a gracious gift that unjust suffering is and put the glory of God on display for the world to see. I could tell sensational stories of martyrs, martyrs of old, modern-day martyrs, and how their blood has done more for the kingdom spilled on the ground than it ever could have done. Pumping through their veins, and many of them joyfully shed it. My fear in doing that is it would become a disconnected, um, a disconnected from your present reality. What if instead we imagine some hypothetical situations that might be a little closer to home? What does this passage look like in the context of a spouse who is taken advantage of by their unbelieving partner? What does this text mean and look like in the context of a single mom who's trampled on by her ex-husband because she forgives and exerts effort keeping the kids in a relationship with him? What does this text look like in the context of a Christian brother or sister who maybe you lent money to and when they were in need and, and they took advantage of your generosity and they drag your name through the dirt when they're done? What does this text look like in the context of a family member who you keep having to forgive and who keeps hurting you over and over again, or a teacher who punishes you for being late, for helping a friend in need, or a coach who cuts your playing time because you came to church on Wednesday night, a government that shuts down a needed social service because they're Christian-oriented or pulls your business license because of your Christian ethics? What does it look like when it hits close to home? As a Christian, you are always on display to the world. But when you suffer for it, that's game day. That's the day you have prepared for. That's the day that God wins. Not the day to bow up and make it right. Because that is the day, and that is the way, that you tell the world, I'm fully entrusted. I am his, he is king, and this is bigger than you, and it's bigger than me. And you scream this from the mountaintops by changing nothing. Nothing about your actions. We do good, we give honor where it was due, we love the brotherhood, and we fear God. Turn your attention back to the text. Verse 21. For to this you have been called... He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. For to this you have been called, to follow his example. To follow the example of the man who was treated so poorly, yet did not sin who deceit was not found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten in return. But what did he do? The text tells us, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's what it looks like to be fully entrusted. And he did this to heal you, and he did this to heal me. Our Savior endured the worst imaginable injustice. God, the Creator, suffered at the hands of His creation. And every step of the way, He kept His conduct good. He was sinless. In our attempts at justice, we deceive, we revile, we threaten, and Jesus entrusted. And we're called to do likewise. Never before... Has God been glorified more than through the suffering and death of Jesus Christ? I don't know where you're at tonight. Perhaps you have struggled to know your position as a Christian who also happens to be an American. We live in subjection and give honor where honor is due. We use our freedom, not our American freedom, but our God-given freedom to pursue and act with goodness directed toward God. Perhaps you have or are struggling with evil a little more directly. Perhaps as I have preached this sermon, a particular person who has treated you unjustly or unfairly comes to mind. Are you fully entrusted? It's my prayer that as sojourners and exiles, we would never take our eyes off God that no human institution or unjust action would cause us to lose stride, that our consistent conduct and good deeds would put our trust in God on display for the entire world to see. For he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For what he asked us to do is very similar indeed to what he has done for us and what he has done for those around us. We can praise God for grace. We can praise God for Christ. We can praise God for salvation and pray that even our worst enemy would see the truth as we do. If tonight you need the prayers of the church, if tonight you are struggling with where you have put your trust, we would like to partner with you in redirecting that. If you would like to repent, If you have studied and know the truth about Jesus and would like to put him on in baptism, whatever your need may be, the invitation is open tonight. We invite you to come forward as we stand and sing.